Welcome to The Painted Garden with Kimberly Trowbridge. This is a podcast about color theory and the creative life. Hello, sentient beings. Trying something new. I'm sitting here talking to you from my backyard garden in Top Hat in South Seattle. So you're going to hear the wind. You're going to hear airplanes going by perhaps birds chirping, maybe a squeaking hummingbird here and there. I wanted to take the microphone outside. I've been spending so much time out here in the yard, dipping my feet and whole body into the oracle pool. Uh, My oracle pool is a tiny little turquoise kitty pool that's really only a foot bath. But lately I've been curling up in fetal position so that my entire body can fit inside of the blue circle, and I love it. But so I'm just wanting to be outside. It's my space right now where I feel the most clear and at the same time the most intimate. And so I wanted to see if I could take you with me, if I could have you out here with me. The first thing on my list of what I want to talk to you guys about today is actually a reading from May Sarton's Letters. It's a book of collected letters uh, from 1916 to 1954. And I was reminded of this book of letters from Maria Popova's wonderful uh, blog called Brain Pickings. If you're not familiar with it and you love some of the content that I share, then you would truly love brain pickings. Uh, So many wonderful suggestions and insights about writers and poets and philosophy and ideas. And so a recent post had a small quote or a mention of this one letter that May Sarton had written to Virginia Woolf in 1939. In fact, the letter is dated January 15th, 1939, so we are at the very beginnings of World War II and life rapidly changing um, in every way for everyone um, in Europe in particular. And so this letter that Maria Popova had you know, quoted something from, brought me to this uh, collection of letters that I already had on my shelf, and I couldn't believe how wonderfully relevant and insightful this one letter was for the time that we're experiencing right now. Um, So it starts off, it says, To Virginia Woolf. Dear Virginia Woolf, One begins to imagine the possible renaissance of the bulbs which one planted so hopefully and despaired of at every frost. The spring exists now in the mind. That is why January is such a hard month. One is already in state of expectation for what can't begin actually for months. We have planted single white tulips. I can't wait for them. Never has there been a year when one needed more to be born again. 
So again, she's writing this letter in January and thinking about the white tulip bulbs that she had planted. And so January, months away from spring and the opening of nature, and already that longing is there. Uh, that makes me think, of course, of T.S. Eliot's April is the cruelest month when all the crocuses start to come up out of the ground and it's almost like a mocking to the lover that the earth is starting to rejoice um, and yet still there is this suffering. So May Sarton begins this letter to Virginia Woolf explaining this kind of longing and has this image of these bulbs under the ground waiting and then in the second paragraph she starts off, she says, but this, I forget, is a business letter. And says, I've been wanting to write to you for a long time, but hesitated before the unimportance of what I might have to say, measuring it against the desire to communicate and finding it outweighed each time. Now there is a reason, a real definite one. It is this. In New York, an association for taking care of refugees from Germany has been having auctions of manuscripts. And so she goes on to request uh, sort of modestly, timidly, um, but definitely outright um, asking Virginia if she would feel comfortable submitting a letter or a draft for an essay or some kind of page that could be included in this auction for refugees. Um, and after that request, she goes on. Since I saw you, as I remember it, a nightmarish occasion because the end was the beginning, and I had to go at the beginning with a sharp sense of loss and parting. Since then, I have been struggling it has taken the form of laying aside a new novel, a little better than the first, less facile perhaps, but not good. Of reading Rilke, who is like a dense forest into which one disappears, penetrating slowly and often in the dark, but always with a sense of awe and imminent discovery. There are few writers whom one must in some way become before reading. I think he is one, and so reading him is more than reading. It can become the most absorbing part of one's life for a time. I am so grateful that he was there this year. Just this year and no other, where the spirit is towered over by world horror. Where it seems like a blade of grass pushing through a pavement, not less miraculous. And then I have been struggling with teaching a class in prose writing and one in poetry. The prose people are six young girls varying from 16 to my age. And it seemed at first as if they would never see, let alone write what they saw. It is appalling the stuffedness with things unfelt, unimagined, unlived of people out of schools. I cannot understand why poetry is not taught at schools as a way of seeing, a quick, untiring path to essentials. These girls have a certain amount of knowledge, but they do not know anything for themselves. Given a tree, they do not see it for themselves at all. It is not new, not theirs, not given for the first time like a present. 
It is just a tree that they have read about or passed by in a car. Not one would go up to and feel the trunk with her hands. So I have tried all sorts of experiments, wondering, for instance, if they would see better a thing already interpreted by Cezanne or Van Gogh. It did work, and I was pleased. Now I am leading them inwards to people and themselves, hoping that by the end of the year they will write a short autobiography. I'm going to stop there after that wonderful paragraph, long paragraph. She's telling Virginia how she's been suffering with kind of not being able to complete a novel uh, during this time of world horror, uh, fear, and how Rilke, the poet, has been a real gift to her during this time. Let me go back and quote what she says about him. She says, Rilke is like a dense forest into which one disappears, penetrating slowly and often in the dark, but always with a sense of awe and imminent discovery. Isn't that wonderful? That's how I would love my paintings to be described. Something that you have to penetrate slowly and in the dark, and that is full of awe and discovery. And then I love that that idea of discovery comes back through her naming Cezanne and Van Gogh. When she moves into talking about, you know, how difficult it can be teaching a creative class. And she's describing this prose class with young women that she's teaching and trying to get them to see, to participate in their own lives, their own presentness, to learn a kind of ownership that idea of the tree being a gift, um, that each tree is an individual that you as an individual have a relationship with, you can sense in your body. That kind of lifting of the veil, I think of all the defenses that we set up as people and that through the creative act, we can get back to the essentials. Um, how amazing is that statement that she says, I cannot understand why poetry is not taught at schools as a way of seeing a quick, untiring path to essentials. A quick, untiring path to essentials. Isn't that wonderful? The learning of a language, poetry being... Uh, using the medium of language to chisel down to the images and the meanings that are like diamonds or crystals, prismatic and yet sharp and clear and illuminating. And I, of course, relate that so much to a color practice and teaching people a language for color so that they have a way of participating, of identifying the differences and similarities between things, um, the relationships between things through naming parts, component parts of color. What value is it? What temperature is it? How saturated is it? To give us a kind of keyboard for our perception and she then goes on 
to describe the poetry class that she's also teaching, um, the former one being a prose class where she's going to get them to be autobiographical. Uh, but she goes on to explain this poetry class. She says, The poetry class is at present two elderly ladies, a teacher in a progressive school, and a curious, aloof creature who once sent you a book about women called From the Sea. Her name is Mrs. Swift. One is very simple, practical, eager, and ignorant. The other is subtle, learned, out to catch me like a fish in her hands, and it is a game to placate them both. But I am learning a lot even if they aren't, and it is good to feel slightly useful. <laughs> I love this wonderful naked description um, as a teacher of these characters she's teaching. You know, so much about being a teacher and a leader is being present with people and finding a common ground amongst them where they can all feel creative and safe to be creative. And so this kind of hilarious and very apt description, though, of this balancing game that a teacher is doing between all of the different personalities, um, it is a true work of art to be able to do that. Um, and so she goes on. Otherwise, I am in a flood of poetry, one of the incredible times when I know that I have only to sit down for it to seize me and play a tune. It is so rare when it happens, and so unexpected, and usually so intimately bound up with personal emotions. But now it has come out of thinking, and not out of myself in the same way. Still, the need to solve, to create a balance out of opposing forces inside, to climb to a peak and for an instant rest and look down. But now not the solving of a war in the heart, thank God at last. For the first time in my life, I see that I have grown an inch, and I believe that I may in ten years be a poet. It is wonderful. This idea of being seized, that she's not, that she says she's flooded with poetry at this time. I relate that to that kind of urgency of terrifying events happening around you, uh, like we're experiencing right now as we recognize all of steps towards falling into a fascist state and having to press back with clarity and generosity and positivity but so that being seized by poetry that she says she's never even far away from or at all it takes is for her to sit down for it to seize her and to play a tune I feel that way in my studio right now, that, and also just being in my garden, that it doesn't take much for me to immediately go to that creative space where I need to chisel down, to synthesize, to massage 
my mind and my animal body to work through and create a new harmonic order um, in order to move forward uh, with grace into the universe. Um, I love, love, love how she uh, describes that feeling, that need to solve, she says, and the word solve is underlined. She says, still the need to solve, to create a balance out of opposing forces inside, to climb to a peak and for an instant rest and look down. But now not the solving of a war in the heart, and in parentheses she says, thank God, explanation mark, at last. Meaning she's describing this moment of transition where she's witnessing her own uh, maturity as a human, as a writer, as a poet, where she's saying that this urgency, uh, this poetics that's seizing her isn't so much this kind of adolescent emotional outpour um, not a solve a need to solve a war that takes place in the heart, um, but rather something I think more thoughtful, uh, something that has a different kind of distance or proximity to the self. I love that she says, "I have grown an inch, and I believe that I may in ten years be a poet. It is wonderful." And she ends here. She says, Dear Virginia Woolf, that is all I have to say. I wish, we, I wish you were near and that I could send you the primroses that I saw in a shop and gave to my mother instead. Yours to command, May Sarton. P.S. Here is a poem or two. They are beginnings and not ends. Intimations of perhaps a poem someday that might be written by someone else or by me. Isn't that wonderful? So she clearly doesn't know Virginia Woolf very well. She clearly looks up to her as a kind of mentor, someone she admires. Um, they clearly had met at some point, but there was a sense of regret that like upon that beginning of the friendship that somehow it was also uh, the ending at the same time, perhaps a parting of ways or perhaps the onset of the war, uh, the uh, not as realistic ability perhaps to see each other. Um, but the whole tone of it, uh, I think, is really interesting, and in particular with where we are right now as artists trying to cope and, I think, also reaching out to each other. I've had some really important connections with people recently, uh, a real urgency to let people know how, how much you matter to me. Um, my friends, my fellow artists, my family, my students. Um, I care deeply for you. Um, I want to talk to you about a couple things that I have written down here that are kind of thoughts that run through my head when I'm in the garden or when I'm in my studio painting and there it's this kind of dial inner dialogue that I have that is specific to speaking to a 
a hypothetical or a particular student. And so it's this voice in my head where I kind of work things out or like I'll notice some kind of truism or pattern in my practice uh, that I've been returning to and kind of recognize it as, ooh, this is kind of a wonderful little nugget that I think uh, would be really helpful to many of my students. And so there are two of them that have been coming up for me lately. And the first one has to do with ritual. And the second one has to do with taking a leap of faith. The first one, ritual, has to do with the very practical part of the studio practice. Meaning the going into the studio perhaps in the morning and cleaning um, or organizing one's palette, mixing a fresh batch of colors, uh, perhaps washing the brushes from a late night studio night the night before, um, organizing notes, um, perhaps sweeping the space. These rituals that are not negotiable. They are a essential part of the practice. Uh, painting does not happen without paint. <laughs> and in some sense, an order or a system to take place. And it's in the setting up of that scenario, uh, kind of setting up the theater in which you're going to be working and uh, earnestly and with integrity, preparing and setting out the tools that you're going to need to use um, in order to do the work that you need to do in the creative space. And so that is a, a kind of sense of duty. It's a sense of ritual that is such an important part of being an artist. And so it's critical that an artist create a cycle or a pattern that creates space for that and admits it instead of like, oh, I'm going to have this two hours on Thursday to go into my studio and to have the expectation that you can just walk in the door and start painting furiously and having that release. No, you have a lot of preparation work in order to enter that sacred space and the ritual to prepare for it is very, very, very important. And it can happen at the same time as the creative act or, you know, as a lead-in to that, certainly to go in and organize your palette, that that's the way you kind of get in the mood. But if you have a busy life that needs to be in shorter stints, like if you're raising children and it's a little bit more of an off-on, in-out, you can have a session that's about that ritual, about that this time in the studio is just going to be about organizing my tools and cleaning and honoring my tools and methods um, and getting to daydream a little bit and giving yourself that understanding of how important that is. And so in a way you could do that as a gift to your future self, knowing that I'm not going to be able to get deeply creative right now because of time restraints. So I'm going to set up this sacred temple space with my tools so that when I do have the opportunity, everything's ready for me. 
So that's the first one I want to address with you, this idea of ritual and taking it very seriously and understanding it as a very integral part of your practice. And then the second one I want to talk to you about is another wonderful experiment. And it's about taking a leap of faith. And I guess in a way I want to start by looping back to the George O'Keefe quote I read to you, I think perhaps on episode one, where she says, I have been terrified every moment of my life, and I've never let it stop me from doing what I love to do. Okay, so terrified and creating. So when I'm in the studio, it is a sacred space where that battle with the self is held. That at nearly every turn, it is a challenge and a battle to quiet the self-doubt, the right now especially incredible terror of what we know is happening in the world right now. And so all of the kind of infinite layers of our consciousness uh, e kind of eroding or trying to erode the essential need and desire to create. And so after the ritual of setting up, coming into the sacred space and honoring that that is a place of belief, even if it's a leap of faith, even if it is in some ways simply an experiment, even an intellectual experiment where every time yourself tells yourself that this is cliche, that, oh my god, all of these new marks I've made are ruining the painting, it's getting worse. To make the decision to literally flip that around into a statement of belief, saying instead of, oh, this is getting so much worse, I'm losing it, oh, this is creating an opening, and I could see this getting very interesting. So this flipping of that inner voice, like actually literally doing that, literally saying the opposite in your mind um, as a mantra, uh, that's something that I have practiced and have had to practice a lot in order to keep myself working in the studio. I'm ruining it. I'm making it better. This is trite. This has potential for meaning. Experiment with taking a leap of faith, where every turn you make the decision to believe in yourself, to support yourself, to be there present for the journey, and to know deeply in your cells that that is you touching life. That is you 
loving and believing in yourself and your role in the universe and that you have something lovingly to feel and to express. Thank you for being here with me today in the Painted Garden. Thank mm-hmm. you.